Remain standing and open your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. I want to read from verse 18 through verse 31, but I let's ask the Lord's blessing and upon the reading and the preaching of his word this morning, let's pray together. Now, blessed Lord, we do come in the sweet name of Jesus, our Lord. We ask for enlightenment. We ask for understanding. We ask, O oh Lord, for correction, for training in righteousness. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would bring to bear upon us this day the power of God in our lives as we hear the gospel unfold, as we, as we watch as we hear, as we see the truth, Lord, come from the pages of your word, that we would embrace it by faith, and then we would live out its precepts, its laws, its statutes, Lord, in the power of Christ. So do bless us, O oh Lord, as we see, as we hear, Lord, as we, become, as we are confronted with these blessed doctrines and truths. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Beginning at verse 18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty and not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God but by, do, but by his doing, we are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Beloved, you may be seated. Beloved, the Apostle Paul is combating the secular humanism of his day. He's having to wage war, if you will, against the philosophers of that time, the wisdom of the age, the wisdom of 
men. Paul is taking to account how the church has drifted from her original foundation, resting upon that solid foundation of the cross, of the gospel. That foundation that was created and built upon, as Paul says, by the power of God. It was the power of God that had enlightened their minds. It was the power of God that had replaced their stony hearts with hearts of flesh that they could, well, be made alive and see and understand and see the gospel as the wisdom of heaven, the wisdom of God. Paul is taking to task these worldly philosophers As I begin to work on the text and meditate upon it and consider what route to take, because there's always various, there's always several routes to take and to bring application to the Word of God. I was just reminded how this has been the age-old problem from the beginning of the world. That is, the real issue here is man being so arrogant and full of himself that he's determined and decided what's best for him rather than what God says is best for him. Paul says over in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he, he addresses their arrogance. In verse 18, now some have become arrogant. And yet this is something the church has always struggled with. The church is not that old. Barely half a decade and now the church is backslidden into a situation to where they have been incorporating this secular wisdom. And, and what we find is that they are replacing the foundation of Christ with the wisdom of this world. And it's having a disastrous effect upon the body. And they have become to question sound doctrine. They've become to bring in great serious immorality into the church. Bickering and fighting among themselves. Creating divisions. Deciding who's the best preacher. Deciding what's the best route to take and none of it, none of it has anything to do with the blessed Christ or the cross or the power of God and in fact it's detrimental to it. These first four chapters of Corinthians are vital to what Paul's going to do in these first, first and second Corinthians. I mean in these first four chapters Paul is laying, if you will, that foundation of the ministry and it's something that we have to look at. We have to examine our ministry with this ministry and we have to ask ourselves, have we in some way or another incorporated worldly wisdom into our philosophy and has that worked its way out into the way we do things as a church? And we have to examine ourselves. We have to be, we have to be honest and humble before the Lord and and be willing to take these things that we may take very, well, great delight in and lay them before the Lord. I said it was an age-old problem, and that's a fact. Satan comes 
soon after God has established Adam and Eve in the garden. And it's interesting, if you go back and you read Genesis 3 and you, you really take a moment and read that temptation account and, and look at it in, in its parts and its pieces and examine it with what you're learning here, I think you'll see easily the connections being made. Satan comes and what's, what does Satan want to do? He wants to create doubt in Eve's mind so that she determines the best path for herself and the best path for her husband. She thought it was wise to go ahead and to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil even after God said, when you do, you shall die. But she fabricated in her heart and mind Based upon the lies of Satan, she fabricated all of this wisdom on why it would be good for her to eat that fruit. What does the text tell us in Genesis? It says, well, she saw it and it was good. It was beautiful. It looked good. Because it looked good, it probably was good. Again, all all putting off what God has revealed putting off what God had already told them not to do, and then creating in her own mind and heart, this is worldly wisdom. I will eat it. It looks good. I'm going to eat it, so therefore it must produce good. Adam adopted this worldly wisdom when he thought, well, you know what? My wife ate it. She said it was good. She's offering it to me. It's probably good that I eat it. Worldly wisdom. Completely denying and rejecting the revelation of God. The one that eats of this tree will die. Now, Jesus is another who was tempted of the devil. And we see the opposite effect. With him. There are three temptations that Jesus undertook in order that I believe to be that last Adam and to sort of solidify that ministry, because that's at the beginning of his ministry, that he is the last Adam. He's going to be the federal head of God's elect. He has come and he has defeated Satan in these temptations where where man failed. And why did man fall? Because man had adopted worldly wisdom in order to make sense of the world they were living in. And here Jesus stands in that first temptation. Now remember, he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. He was hungry, dehydrated, weak, and Satan comes often when we are our weakest. And so what does he tempt Jesus with? You have the power. You are the son of God. If you are the son of God, why don't you use your power to turn these stones into bread? Now I want you to think about something. It's not completely irrelevant to the first temptation with Adam and Eve. The first temptation was what? 
eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The first temptation of Jesus is, why don't you create bread from these stones so that you may eat? Sustain your life. You're tired. You're hungry. You need sustenance. Turn these stones to bread if you are the Son of God and eat and sustain yourself. What would worldly wisdom say to that? You're right. I need sustenance. I need my strength to fight this temptation. Yes, that's not a bad thing to do. I have the power to do it. Why don't I just turn these stones to bread and why don't I eat it and then I'll have the strength to fight Satan. And yet that's exactly what he did not do and what he should not have done because Jesus answers in response. He says, don't you know that man is to live by every word that comes from God's mouth? What is Jesus teaching us there? I'm not going to use my authority in some haphazard way. I don't have the authority to do that. I don't have the authority to take a miracle and just use it for selfish purposes. I will abide upon her. I will abide. I will remain humble upon her, my Father's providence, and I will depend upon him to sustain me. It's not, it's not easy, is it? And yet, what do we battle throughout our history as a church? We battle implementing worldly wisdom rather than depending and trusting on God's wisdom. And this is what Paul is doing here. In verse 18, Paul tells us two things. Number one, he tells us the problem. He tells us that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. That's number one. That's a problem, particularly to a church that believes that all they have to do is go out there and preach the gospel on the sidewalk and people are going to come flocking. Or it's a problem when the church faces uh, ridicule, faces, um, you know, uh, opposition, strong opposition, and they're not prepared for it. And they don't know why. Well, what do you mean? What's the problem? And and so the church is then tempted to utilize worldly wisdom to water down, mitigate, and to compromise the gospel so that the church or so that the perishing are not offended by it rather than trust the Lord. And so Paul says, not only that, he says, for the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And if, as we read through the chapter, Paul is certainly commenting on those principles, on that doctrine, and he talks about how the the world is just not, uh, uh, the world is in no way moved by the preaching of the gospel. In fact, they mock it. They think it's foolishness. They, they have no use for it. That's the point Paul's making because you put away foolishness. Just like the world dismisses the gospel. I mean the real gospel, the true gospel, not the, the gospel that you might find so easily on TV with 
what we understand to be those TV preachers, if you will, are those mega pastors. Men that are, well, apt easily to water down the truth of the gospel and the power of the cross in order to make people feel good about themselves. And that's why it's hard to find churches where you may go and feel the pressure and the burden and the conviction of sin because we have been told for decades that no one wants to hear about sin. Preacher, you can't preach about sin. That makes people uncomfortable. They won't come to your church. They won't join churches that take sin seriously. They won't join churches that take membership seriously. They won't join churches that exercise excommunication when needed and necessary. They won't come to your church if you want to hold them accountable to their Christian profession. They won't come to your church. If you really want to grow a church, here's the things you need to do. And I, told, I used to tell people, that would often lament our size. Oh, I just wish we were larger. Oh, I just wish that we had more people listening to these messages. Oh, I wish that was full. And I, I just, I just, why can't we have a large membership? And, and, and in, in and of itself, it's very innocent. That's very innocent and a great desire to see people saved. I mean, the point is, and honestly, and I think this is what people are saying, and this is, I'm sure, your thoughts as well, that when we talk about filling this place up with people, we're talking about filling this place up with conversions. People that have come under the burden of sin, people that have come under the, the burden of, the, of their own guilt and waywardness and have been reconciled to God in Christ and now Christ is very beautiful to them. Christ is glorious to them, why? Because it is the power of God working Christ in their lives. And Christ now is no longer a mockery but a beautiful savior. So I understand the conversation I do. But beloved, it doesn't take much to grow a church with numbers. It doesn't. And I would tell the people, we can grow this church. We can bust out the doors. We could even build onto this property. If we wanted to, all we'd have to do is make some changes. I know that one of the churches that I wouldn't say we competed with because I don't think there's competition in the true church of Jesus Christ, but some see it that way. There's a competition for, you know, visitors and, and they would use techniques and they would tape iPhones to the bottom of the seat. They would tape iPads to the bottom of the seat. They would, they would tape as much as $50 and $500 in cash to the bottom of seats to get people to come and check the seat. And that was real. That was true. I know that to be a fact. And of course, they did it all under the, the, the impression and idea that we don't care what technique we use. We just want to get people in the door. 
I had a good friend of mine that went to that church. I say a good friend of mine. I grew up with him, and we ended up in Macon together, and we just found out we were both Christians, and we had discussions about these things. So I know this is what happened. And they were very excited about having Harley Davidson's on in the church. They would drive these things up into the church and, and they were appealing to these middle-aged men that, you know, nobody liked their Harleys, but these guys do and let's go to this church. And we laugh, don't we? We laugh. We cry and laugh. But this is what Paul is combating just in his day. He's combating this worldly wisdom, the, 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 the wisdom that men fabricate for themselves. And they say, this is how it ought to be done. This is probably a good thing. These are the things that we should do if this and then that. And then Paul is destroying all of that. And he says, let me, let me explain to you the problem. The problem is those who are perishing hate the cross. They hate the cross. Let me, before we get deep into the text, let's just look at Proverbs 14. Turn there with me. The first verse I want to point you to. Now, this, this, this proverb, right, this chapter has several points that highlight God's wisdom versus man's wisdom or highlights man's wisdom. And of course, we would compare that and lay that beside God's wisdom and see the difference. But the first one that I want to point out to you is verse 12, because I think this is what this is at heart. For there is a way which seems right to a man, but what? But its ends is the way of death. That's what we're talking about here. Because what, what Paul is addressing and dealing with, once you replace the foundation of the gospel, the foundation of a crucified Savior and the power of God, once you replace that with something else, you have a different gospel. You have a different Savior. You have a different God. And you got to be careful of that. And, and this proverb helps us understand that the way that seems right to man they're not God's ways. They're man's ways and all of man's ways, no matter what person it is, all of man's ways lead to death. Look at verse six. A scoffer seeks wisdom, right? But guess what? He finds none. He finds none. But knowledge is easy to the one who has understanding. That understanding is the one who has faith. That is understanding and wisdom come through the means and avenue of faith in Christ. I know because I believe. I don't know to believe. One's God-centered and one's man-centered. That's been the 
all throughout history, down through the age of the church, has been the problem. Man having to bring God down to his own intellect and making God like man in order for him to understand him and accept him. And God says, it doesn't work that way. I have the power to illuminate your mind, to give you a heart of faith and eyes to see and ears to hear. And that's why Paul says it is the power of God unto salvation. God says, I make you a new creation and therefore you understand. Look at verse 14, the backslider in heart will have his fill of his own ways. But a good man will be satisfied with his. I mean, the backslider in heart will have his fill of his own ways. Verse 33, wisdom rests in the heart of the one who has understanding, but in the hearts of fools it is made known. Brothers and sisters, these are age-old doctrine, principles, and truths that were true in the very beginning of the world. They were true up until the time of Christ. They are true after the time of Christ, and they're true today, and they will continue to be true. There's basically two ways that we can live our lives and perform this ministry and that is man's way or God's way. We can be man pleasers or we can, as Paul said, we can glorify God. We can carefully examine ourselves. We can carefully examine our works, our philosophies, our understanding in light of God's word and we can conform and that's what humility, humility is the precursor to submission. We humble ourselves before the power of God and the cross and we are then what? Well, we are submissive to his ways. Arrogance is resistant. Arrogance is that guy in church and that elder or that pastor goes, yeah, 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 but I I know what the Bible says, but. Oh, yeah, 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 I, I mean, I know that sound doctrine, but. That's worldly wisdom. That's the way the world reacts to the things of God. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, okay, yeah, but I like this better. What does, so Paul lays out the problem for us in verse 18, and then in verse 19, he certainly helps us understand that, well, man's ways are constantly being put down by God. That's what verse 19 is about. Well, we're going to look at this and, and, and understand what are the implications of these two verses. What are, what's the implication of this battle Paul is, is waging here in Corinth with these worldly philosophers, with these, these secularist ways? And then we have to ask ourselves, because again, it may not be the exact same thing. I mean, in this day and time, I mean, you can think, I mean, they were very much enthralled with power, the power of the world and paganism and, the, the, and power, this energy that the world possessed. They didn't know where it came from. And even today, scientists cannot account for what? Energy, power. Where did it come from? 
They can't account for it. There's no formula for it. We know where it came from because the Bible tells us where it came from. But scientists cannot account for energy. You know that. That's why when they sit there in class and in college, whatever you take, and they want to talk all boastful-like, and they want to, you know, exalt themselves over these little, you know, piddly students as if they know everything, they do not. I think one great piece of advice one Christian philosopher said is when these elites talk, the best thing to do is to ask them what they mean by this and make them define it. He said, and you'll find out that they don't even know what they're talking about. That they get lost in their own definitions. But they want to present themselves as the authority of truth. It's a masquerade. It's a, a facade. It's everything that we talked about in the book of Proverbs, isn't it? Well, we have to believe that, though. We have to trust God for that. And then we have to respond to that revelation of truth and, and trust God for the outcome of it as well. Because if you want that professor or you want some society or you want the world to applaud you and pat you on the back for being a tremendous Christian, well, that's not going to happen. And nor should it. You should look to please God to glorify him, to be pleasing to him with your views, to be pleasing to him with your techniques, and to be pleasing with him, even with the outcome, whatever that case may be. And Paul gets into that in his own life as we get through this, these two letters. Paul addresses that. Even with himself, God said, no, I left that thorn in your flesh, 2 Corinthians 12, I left that thorn there, Paul, so that my power and my strength would be exalted in your weakness. I didn't want to take it away from you because I didn't want you to get arrogant. I didn't want you to think it was all about you, Paul. I wanted you to remain humble and submissive to my power and work in you and through you. And that's what it means to submit. That's what it means to submit in whatever situation. Things that are uncomfortable, things that we don't like, and things that may even be very painful. But Lord, you have a plan and you have a purpose for this, and I will trust you for it. We do have a version of Christianity out there that seeks to eliminate all pain, all suffering, all inconvenience. That's not Christianity. And it's certainly not in the gospel. That's why we are very, very steeped in self-help literature. Some people think exercise is the answer to a successful life. Some people think it's mental wellness. Some people think it's financial. Some people think it's family, right? Some people think it's education. And yet all of those things ultimately fail and will not produce the peace, the security, the success, the tranquility that we desperately want as being made in the image of God.
Now, this word of the cross, what is it? Well, it's your version, your particular translation may say the message of the cross. And it's highlighting really an application of what Paul's talking about, and that is the preaching of the cross. Paul is highlighting this doctrine. We don't just preach, you know, nothing. We preach doctrine. Paul says that this preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Now, I think it would be good when we talk about the cross to look at how Paul uses this concept, this doctrine of the cross in his writings. He's really the main apostle that, well, that sets this concept before his readers, and that's the cross. If you go to Galatians, there are three texts of Scripture that Paul uses there when he speaks of the cross. Galatians 5.11, Paul writes, he says, Now, brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been done away with. Now, Paul talks about, even in the book of Galatians, that the preaching or the doctrine of the cross is offensive. He's not shying away from that. Paul, what is Paul saying? Paul says, listen, if I preached circumcision, you wouldn't have a problem with it. Because what was the problem in Galatia? The problem is so there were some that said, not only do you have to put your faith in Jesus Christ, but you also have to be circumcised. You have to follow these ceremonial laws if you want to be a Christian. And Paul denied that. Paul, just like we would deny you have to be baptized to be a Christian, we deny that doctrine of the church of Christ that says not only do you profess faith in Christ, but you must also be baptized in one of our churches in order to be a Christian. We reject that on the basis that Paul rejects circumcision as an addendum to salvation. It's faith in Christ and faith in Christ alone that saves, not some amendment to a sacrament or ceremony. And Paul says, listen, he says, if I preach circumcision, would be to preach the law, but that would be antithetical to the doctrine of grace. It'd be antithetical to the cross. Why? Because what is the gospel? What is the doctrine of the cross? Is that Jesus alone is the one who saves. Circumcision wasn't nailed to the cross. Circumcision didn't atone for your sins. Jesus did. Jesus was the unblemished lamb that laid down his life, not circumcision. It's no act of man that in any way adds to the work of Christ as if he needed help. But man loves that. That's part of worldly wisdom. Men love, when I say men, I mean men and women. Men love the idea of aiding God in saving themselves so that they can take some form of credit for it. Galatians 6, verse 12, it is those who want to make a good appearance in the flesh who compel you to be circumcised, but only so that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. We see here how the doctrine of the cross is not only seen as foolish, it is not only offensive, but we see that in Paul's day, those who believed in this doctrine were persecuted. 
And Paul says, some of you are just wanting to be circumcised. You want to add this to your faith so that the persecution of the cross isn't so hard on you. We see consequences. We see the, how the world is at war with the ways of God. Not just God, but his ways. To be at war with God is to be at war with God's ways, his applications, the way he wants things done, his teachings. That's why you can't have a person say, oh, I love God, but I don't love that Bible. Oh, I love God, but I don't like that doctrine. I don't like the doctrine of sovereign grace, but I love God. No, 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 no. To love the one true and living God is to love his ways. Galatians 6, 14, but as for me, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What is Paul saying? Paul says that this doctrine of salvation, that's what we're calling the cross of Christ here, that this doctrine of salvation, Paul says, it is through its teaching, it is through the power of God, the, the regeneration, the submission of my own heart and mind through the power of God, I have become an enemy of the world and the world has become an enemy to me. We see that there is an inclusive worldview attached to the cross. And that destroys the, the worldly wisdom that you can come to church on Sunday and live any way you want to at the next six days of the week. And you can just come back in and go run through the formality of religion and feel like you are fine with God. You cannot. It's a worldview. And Paul says it is through this cross, it is by the power of God that I have been made an enemy of this world. I'm incompatible with it. I'm incompatible with it. I cannot accept its teaching. Listen, I can't, I can't, I can't accept evolution. I can't accept man's clever way of, of inventing how this world possibly came into existence. Possibly, theoretically, hypothetically. I can't accept it. I'm at war with that doctrine. Why? Because the cross of Christ working in me, that doctrine of salvation by the power of God, I must accept what the Bible says is true. And my Bible tells me that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that God takes great delight in calling himself creator. And Paul says it, this cross, this teaching renders me at war with this world. And, the, and look, the world, the world with me. He uses this idea in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16. He reconciled both groups to God in one body through the cross. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. By which he put the hostility that existed between the two Jews and Gentiles to death. What is Paul teaching us in Ephesians 2 verse 16? That there are not a Jewish way to God in heaven and a Greek way to God in heaven. 
There's one way to heaven. There's one way to God. And both Jews and Greeks must enter through that one way. And that narrow way is the cross. It's the cross. It's the doctrine of salvation that Jesus alone saves. And that salvation is received by faith. It's the power of God. I mean, that's, you know, listen, this puts to death and destroys this whole philosophical argument and political argument and wrangling about God's people over there. God only has one people. One people. He's always only had one people. And that are those who trust and rest in him by faith and faith alone. Not faith in circumcision. Not faith in baptism. Not faith in the Lord's Supper, not faith in men, but faith in Christ alone, by grace alone. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now here Paul uses it literally. But here's the point. See, we read that verse and you don't cringe. You don't cringe. You see, you're not from the first century. You haven't seen those crucified criminals outside of the city. You haven't seen the horrible death that they suffer because it is not instant. It is a long, agonizing torturous death to those who are crucified. Crucifixion was, well, a primary Roman way of executing criminals and political prisoners and, well, anyone else they didn't like. And yet, what Paul is saying is not even the cross, the, the, the horrible Horrible death of the cross did not keep Christ from laying down his life as a ransom for many. I mean, look, I encourage you. It's interesting how Paul talks about this doctrine of the cross, right? This message of the cross. I mean, it, it was offensive. I mean, it was horrible. It was despicable. It was not the way you would want to be executed. And yet that's the route Christ had to take to solidify and guarantee the promises that we confessed earlier this morning. That inheritance that we can now say yes and amen to because Christ has guaranteed it in the laying down of his life and being raised again from the dead. Philippians 3 and verse 18, he says, For I have often told you and tell you now with tears that many walk as, what, enemies of the cross of Christ. What Paul is saying is in the first century, what he's saying in 1 Corinthians 1, he says that this doctrine, that this teaching, it has many, many enemies. And they are at work to 
to destroy the, the, this gospel teaching by watering it down, mocking it, ridiculing it, persecuting it. And what we need is that promise given to us in verse 19 where Paul uses it out of Isaiah and he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the cleverness of the clever. Paul, what God is saying is, I've been doing this from the beginning. And I'll get to that in a minute. We can go through Colossians, we can go through Hebrews, and all of this is point and is how the, Paul uses this doctrine of salvation, this doctrine that he calls, it's the cross of Christ, the teaching, the worldview, the power of it. Paul says, the perishing. Who are the perishing? The perishing are those who are abiding upon the wrath of God. They are the ones that are at this point are not believing now, beloved and sisters, I'm a, I don't think that this could be interpreted as it's the non-elect. And here's why. Well, because I ridiculed Christians before becoming a Christian. I didn't ridicule the teaching, which is different. I ridiculed the people. Because as a high schooler out doing things that I shouldn't be doing, who was doing them with me? But those who were in church on Sunday morning, those who were going to Sunday school, those who were baptized, those who professed to be Christians, they were right along with me and oftentimes were worse than me. And I remember standing back at times thinking, well, <laughs> I mean, you claim to be a Christian. And so therefore I thought, Christianity was silly and had no use for it. See, I didn't see Christianity as the power of God and the salvation because I didn't see salvation. I just saw worldliness. I saw people who would say, oh, yeah, man, I believe in God. Oh, yeah, yeah, I believe in Bible. I'm like, you read that thing? I even, I, in fact, I think once or twice I, I let them talk me into going to Sunday school, you know, when they had those, uh, when, they, when they, these churches had these uh, bring a friend day. I was a friend. Bring a heathen day. And I, I, you know, I sat there and, I mean, I, I did not disbelieve in God. Don't get me wrong. When I was jumping out of airplanes in the military, I prayed every time before I got up in that plane for protection. Who was I praying to? I thought I was praying to God. But I had no idea I was at war with God. I had no idea that I was an enemy of God. I didn't know. Because all I was ever taught was an Arminian form of the gospel. Was that All you got to do is ask Jesus in your heart. You'd be okay. But I just didn't feel okay. And just to let you know, even when I would come in and all my rambunctious evenings before I went to sleep, I would say prayers and completely be lost. But there was a day when the power of God came to me in the cross of Christ, like, like you. And it was different. It was different. I believed and trusted and rested. And all of a sudden, it didn't look so foolish. All of a sudden, 
It looked like the only way to go. Brothers and sisters, this is what Paul is talking about here. Well, let's talk about those. That's the perishing. The perishing are those who still abide up under this wrath of God. They can't see. They are blinded by their own sins and love for sin, right? Their love for sin keeps them from seeing the beauty of Christ and the doctrine of salvation. Satan adds to that the blinding of their minds. He, he holds a veil over their minds so that they don't understand. And it's almost as if we think, well, if we could just bring this teaching into contact with man's intellect, he will be forced to submit to it. That's not the way it works. God changes man. He regenerates man. He changes his heart so that when the gospel comes in contact with his person, his heart and intellect, he says yes and amen. Yes and amen. Lord, forgive me for I'm a sinner. Worthy of judgment. And I put my faith and trust in you. So we talk about this this, this gospel, this teaching of salvation. But now let's talk about the power of God. I want to make some application of it. And I really wanted to go through, and this is the way I work sometimes or the way my brain thinks, but I wanted to go through and I just said, you know, when you're talking about the power of God unto salvation, that power of God was revealed in the very beginning. Adam and Eve had sinned against God. They fell from the covenant of works. They violated it. They, they were alive and now they're dead in sins and trespasses and God came and restored them and, well, cleansed them and gave them clothes to wear and gave them the promise of a coming redeemer that would, yes, suffer, right? His heel would be bruised, but that this coming Savior would, would crush the head of the serpent, that's the, what we call in theology the very first promise of the gospel right there in Genesis. The, the proto-evangelicum. This is the, the, the proto-gospel. This is the proto-good news right here that, that God would send a savior to destroy the devil and his works. And he would do so through his suffering. Cain didn't believe that. Cain didn't believe that. We can start with Cain, right? Cain did not accept the cross of Christ being foreshadowed or being prophesied about there in Genesis. Cain rejected it. He didn't believe it. And therefore he had rejected the power of God and he never was converted. And he ended up murdering his own brother. Now, even Cain lived by his own wisdom. How so? Well, if you go back and you look at what Cain was guilty of and you couple that with 1 John 3, then what we learn, Cain worshiped God in the way he wanted to worship God. And John tells us that he was guilty of not having faith when he worshiped God. He just worshiped God any way he wanted to, worldly wisdom, and God rejected it. Just like the masses of the nations rejected the cross in Noah's day. 
And God sent a flood on the earth to wash away the wicked in order to preserve the church. They lived by their own carnal lusts and desires. They lived by their own ways of making themselves happy and, and pleasurable and, and what it means to be successful. And they too rejected the cross. I mean, brothers and sisters, we can move right on up and up through history. And we can talk about all the ways in which men reject the cross and reject the power of God, the, 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 the regeneration, the saving. That is, put a, we putting off sin and putting on the new man and walking in the newness of life. I, Verse 19, he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise I, the, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. This is what God's been doing all throughout history. God's been bringing the wisdom of the wise to nothing. You can say, oh, well, we go to church, but then we adopt all of the worldly ways to manage our marriages, to manage our children, um, you, you know, all of these various things. No, and, and guess what? God is constantly bringing the wisdom of the world to nothing. Let me give you an example. I remember being a very, very young person and, and talking to this uh, person about raising children. I didn't have children, wasn't married at the time. We would just somehow got in this conversation. But I remember it distinctly because we were talking about, well, God and the family. And, um, and they brought up Dr. Spock. Now, some of you older ones may remember that he's one that wrote all of these books about raising children. Books that today would be laughed at by modern secular scientists and philosophers. What, what is God doing? Showing the wisdom of the wise. He was thought he was such, so wise. These are the principles we ought to use. I mean, don't look at the Bible. Let's look at Dr. Spock. Oh, let's not look at the Bible. Let, let's look at Dr. Phil. Let's let Dr. Phil tell us how to, how to engage in these relationships. Let's let Dr. Phil tell us how to raise up. We don't need the Bible. We got these worldly wisdom here. Well, there's a, listen to me, young men. There's a ton of these male gurus online that want to tell you how to be a man. Internet is full of them. Just worldly wisdom. God's going to show how useless it is. It's a fad. It's going to pass away like all the rest of them have passed away. You want to know how to be a man? Study scripture. Study the word of God. Look to Christ. You want to know how to raise your family? Look to the scriptures. You want to know how to have a marriage that honors God? Look to the scriptures. You want to know how to have a successful God-centered ministry? Look to the scriptures. You want to know how to live out, you want to know how to live, be a young, be a young person with all of these temptations? Study the scriptures. How about an old person and all of their temptation? Because you know what, young man, young woman, they have temptations too. That age brings into it. Study the scriptures. God is bringing, verse 19, all of this to nothing nothing and if you adopt it and you start living by it and you start applying it guess what you're going to find out you've wasted your time it's all for nothing 
you know what? I watched a documentary on this Dr. Spock, the psychologist. You know his children hated him? Here's a man telling the country, telling the world, his book sold millions of copies back in the 60s and 70s. And he's telling everyone else how to raise good children. And his children hated him. All of them. But isn't that the way the world goes? Isn't that how the world is? Well, he's the professional. He, he's the professional. He wears the white coat. He's not Christ. He's not the power of God unto salvation. He's not the one that can transform lives. He's not the one that can change hearts, change minds. He's not the one that takes this doctrine and puts it into your heart and mind. Beloved, listen to me. There's one aspect, uh, one other aspect I want to address before we end. And that's this idea of revival or revivalism. We we want revival. We want God's people to be stirred and moved and, and grow closer to Christ and, and love his word and want to read it and want it preached and we want to talk. We, we want that energy and that power and that life. But revivalism is something completely different. But yet revivalism is something that changed this country's landscape, religious landscape, forever in the early 1800s. I could introduce to you several, but I'll only introduce one. One person, a popular theologian, a powerful preacher, and one used to bring this country to a low condition religiously, and that is Charles Finney. Charles Finney was a Presbyterian who did not believe in the sovereignty of God, who did not believe in the doctrines of grace. He, he despised the doctrines of grace. In fact, he did not like the supernatural at all and, and completely gravitated to the natural things of life. And, and he began his preaching and teaching ministry through this great experience that he had out in the woods. And he said how the love of God was just flowing through him like liquid love. That's what it was, liquid love, just flowing through him. And from that point on, he began preaching this man-centered, moralistic gospel. And here's, here's in essence, in essence, what he taught. He taught that the true litmus test, the true reality of a conversion is experience, the, the tears, the emotional angst that one has in professing Christ. He's, the, the, the greater the emotion, the greater promise of salvation now, if one would accuse Presbyterians of believing in baptismal regeneration and baptizing them of infants, you know what we'd call that? We'd call that decisional regeneration. That's what we would call it. That just because I make a decision, it, in, it beckons God to act. And that's what he believed. He believed that man was the first cause of everything. It's a man-centered gospel. 
He was influential in misleading thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Now, brothers and sisters, that gospel is alive and well today in many churches. You can walk an aisle. You can sign a card. You can say the sinner's prayer. And somehow that saves you. But those things do not save, just like circumcision doesn't save and baptism doesn't save. Your decision doesn't save you. Christ saves you. And Christ is the power of God unto your salvation. It's a power. It's an energy. God comes and he, he revolutionizes your life, your thoughts, your emotions. Yes, it's not overnight. It's progressively done. But nevertheless, you are a new creation in Christ, Paul says. The old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. And brothers and sisters, Revivalism is this concept that whenever we get ready for a revival, we just put it up on the sign outside. Revival this week. God's going to come meet with us. God's at our beck and call. That's humanism. That's human wisdom. Revival comes typically in the scriptures and in many places historically through the ordinary use of the means of grace. You see, this is what was at war. In God's wisdom, there's an ordinary means of grace. You partake of the ordinary means of grace every week. And they said, oh, that's not enough. We need, and in fact, he called it, he used this word. We need excitement. We need to preach excitement. We need to expect excitement. We need to respond in excitement. And he believed in this perpetual state of revivalism. That's not the way God works. The ordinary means of grace, beloved, as God moves upon your heart. You know what? God may be doing a personal revival in your life right now to put away cussing, to put on discipline, to put on some form of discipline in your life that you know you've been lazy about, you've been lethargic about, but God is stirring you, God is moving you, and God is empowering you to consider these things and in the faculties of your mind and heart, and he's given you a longing and a conviction for it. He said, I need to prayerfully lay myself before the Lord and beg for the power of God to work salvation in me in this area of my life. I've done all the two steps, three steps, 12 steps, and I'm still five years later struggling with these sins because I have not trusted in the power of God. Now, brothers and sisters, we don't believe in perfectionism. But at the same time, we don't believe in wallowing in sin either and just saying, oh, well, to err is human. You know the bumper sticker that many people repeat whenever they're guilty of something. Oh, well, you know, the air's human. As if that excuses it. Brothers and sisters, as Paul said, and it's what we're going to end with. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. What can you do in your life to exalt the Lord? What sin do you need to deal with to exalt the Lord? 
what area of, of, of your life you need to deal with in order to boast in the Lord so that the power of God would be manifested in your life. What is it, beloved? Know this. God is making useless the wisdom of this world and the cleverness of the wise. He's rendering it useless. Humble yourselves and submit to the cross of Christ because there, Paul says, is the power of God. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, do bless this simple teaching. Empower us, O Lord, with light, with with righteousness. Put our hands, O Lord, upon sound practice that we might implement what we've learned here, what we've heard. Lord, that we would repent of our arrogance and you would cleanse us of it, that we would, Lord, put down the ways of this world, Lord, where we find them and we'd repent of them and seek you and seek the path that you lay for us in your word regarding whatever that is. And Lord, we will give you all the praise and the glory because it's all yours. It is all yours in Christ. And so, Lord, aid us, help us, empower us to praise you more and more. In Jesus' name, amen.